If you have your Bible or you got your smartphone app, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 5 this morning. And uh, glad you're here. Now, to set this up, this is uh, 2 Timothy, and uh, this is the last chapter of 2 Timothy. So where, where is Paul? All right, he's in prison for the last time. He's been in prison on a number of occasions, spent about a third of his ministry in prison, but he's in prison for the last time. He knows this is his final chapter, and so what you have in First Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the actual last chapter that he dictated, uh, most likely to Dr. Luke, who was with him, uh, where he was imprisoned in, uh, in Achaia, in, in Greece. And... Uh, Verse 6, that we will not read, just following the comments that he makes to Timothy here, he says, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Um, I have finished the race. And there is a sense in which he is handing off, he is passing the baton here to, to his protege, his young protege, Timothy. So now where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. Okay. And it's about 60 AD, 60-61 AD. We're going to revisit Ephesus when we, when, in the next series that we do on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and, uh, and, uh, which was written around 90 or in the mid-90s uh, AD. But Timothy is, uh, this young protege of Paul is in Ephesus, and he is one of the leaders, one of the elders or teachers of, uh, of the church there. Um, we know that he's had a long relationship and has traveled with Paul on the second and the third missionary journeys of Paul. And we would surmise from reading carefully the text of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that he was somewhat timid. He was somewhat reluctant as a young pastor. Um, this may have been because of his age, um, because of his youth. It may have been uh, because of lack of experience. It may have been that there were some personal issues that were involved, but continually in First and in Second Timothy, uh, Peter, I mean, Paul, excuse me, encourages him to faith and, and to overcome fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power, love, and of sound reason, sound mind. And uh, this is, so Timothy is in need of encouragement, is he not? Okay, so with that in mind, then let's read uh, from 2 Timothy uh, and from chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill 
your ministry. Now we're beginning a new sermon series today. Ready, aim, fire, right? And uh, so uh, that's not rocket science, is it? Though it is helpful in rocket science if you do, if you are ready and you aim properly and you do fire, okay? I'm saying, but for, this is just an archery lesson today, all right? Okay, so uh, um, I've got my target over here. And, uh, and so there are three commands that, uh, that are important, ready, aim, and fire. They're equally important, are they not? Correct? Yes. Right. I mean, if you're going to follow through, if you're actually going to accomplish something, if this church is going to be all that God wants it to be, it's going to have to execute on all three. It's got to be ready and it's going to have aim and fire. And if, if you don't do all three, then you're going to end up with frustration. Are you not? I mean, it's because if you say ready, fire, what just happened? I'm glad I didn't take out a light. I'd be in big trouble with Ryan if I'd taken out a lie there. <laughs> we didn't aim, did we? We just said, ready, fire. And, you know, how often in an organization, you know, does something like that happen? Right? And there's no real sense of direction. I can get another one here. I promise not to aim at the congregation. <laughs> unless you go to sleep today. <laughs> and then all bets are off. Okay, all right, so, you know, so, so, so what if we just say, aim, fire? Right, let's try that again. <laughs> I mean, are, are you been a part of an organization that does this? Ready, aim, 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 aim. And, you know, you're in that organization, you're screaming in your head, fire! <laughs> Do it! Are we not? Okay. Now, you thought I was going to really shoot this. I, have, I don't know that I'm practiced enough, but... Listen, Bobby Borno, I'm glad I didn't hit your guitar. All right. Yeah, the lights go down. Okay. And, and, all right, enough on the cheesy illustration, all right? But you get the sense that, you know, that that's pretty accurate, isn't it? You know, and the word for today is what? Ready. Ready. Paul says to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. So that's, our, that's going to be our word for today. Now, now interestingly enough, um, it's a little more complicated when you go to the inspired text, to the New Testament, and you look at the original language of the New Testament in the, written in the Koine or the common Greek language, there, in all of those inspired texts, there are at least five words for ready. And so we're going to chase a rabbit for just a minute, but it's a rabbit worth chasing because each of those words gives a little bit of a unique nuance or an understanding of the meaning of what it means to be ready. The word in the text we just read in, in, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, when he says preach or proclaim the word, be ready, it's epistemi. And, and it literally translates this idea to stand by, to be near at hand. That's what it means. To be ready means to, be, to stand by or to be ready at hand. Now, anybody here ever flown standby? Have you? Man, there's... So many people must have a lot of money that you don't have to do that. 
You know, okay, I'm not going to ask you if you've flown first class. But if, you, if you've flown standby before, do you know how standby works, right? You have to stay close to the gate and you wait for them to call your name. Right? And what happens if they call your name and you're not at the gate? You get passed over because you weren't ready to get on that airplane. You, you weren't ready. You, see, it, the, this word epistemy means that you are near at hand. You are ready. And the word picture is a picture of a servant who stays near the master Always ready to answer the call. That's where the word comes from. It is the servant who is close by, always standing near his master. So when his master speaks and his master points, his master gives direction. What does he do? He's ready. Okay, so here's the first question. So how close are you to the master right now? Are you staying within range of his voice? So, so, so that he gives instruction, you're ready. That's epistemy, okay? Now, here's another word in 2 Timothy in chapter 2. In the same letter written to Timothy, uh, uh, going back in chapter 2, verse 20, listen. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now, therefore... Verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, unjust, evil, you know, from whatever is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Here's the master again ready for every good work. It's the word hetoimois. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a little different kind of word here. It's, Paul is saying here that there are going to be various vessels in a house. Some are ornate and beautiful, some not. But even that which is not so ornate, so pretty, if it is cleansed, it's usable for the master. If the, that which is dishonorable has been removed, then it becomes a vessel that is holy and can be used by the master here. Wow. The word in Greek literally means just to be prepared to do something or to receive one who is coming. It was used in reference to preparation to receive one who was coming, anticipating the coming of someone. Now, I love the imagery here. It reminds me of in the, in the, in the 
the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, when Isaiah sees God, he's in the temple carrying out priestly duties. And he's actually, the duties that he's carrying out, he's carrying in golden censers, you know what I'm saying? And he's, he's pouring oil, you know, in, uh, you know at, out of golden vessels. He's carrying a golden tray that carries the table of the showbread. He's using those vessels that have been designated in the temple for use when he sees God. And what's his first response? His response is, woe is me for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees himself in relationship to holy God and he confesses his sin. And then what happens? An angel comes and takes a hot coal with tongs off of the altar of incense in the, in the holy place and places it on his lips. I mean, he just confessed his sin of his lips, did he not? And he gets a hot coal, and, and believe me, that hurts a little bit. Right? And, and, and so as soon as he is cleansed, now Isaiah, see, is a vessel that can be used by God, and he overhears, he overhears the angel, angelic host talking to God in the temple, and God says to the angels, who will go for us and Isaiah immediately raises his hand and cries out, here am I, send me. He was going, I'm going to live sent. Right? But he's not ready to live sent until he has confessed and made right, cleansed himself from that which is dishonorable in his life. So a part of preparation, if we're going to be ready it means that we're going to bring our lives before God in confession. Uh, and I think Oswald Chambers is right. The Christian life consists really of two things. And, and Chambers says this, conscious repentance, conscious or continual confession, bringing our lives before God and allowing God to cleanse our lives. And then he says the second part is unconscious holiness. I love that. Conscious repentance, continual confession, unconscious holiness. Second Corinthians chapter 9, several other words for ready are found here. In Second Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now the context here, Paul is teaching, he's encouraging the Corinthians to be generous Givers to be cheerful givers, and uh, and he they are planning to take an offering at the church in Corinth to be given to the church that's in Jerusalem that's in deep need at the time, and so he's writing to encourage that he's he's writing to encourage them to be ready. But listen to the words that he uses. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. You know, here he equates ministry and financial generosity are the one same. You realize that when you are generous financially, you are involved in ministry in some way. For I know, he says, your readiness now. And the word there in the original language is prothumia. Pro is the prefix for before. So something that is before thumos. And thumos is passion or heat or Anger, and it translates the idea of eagerness, of being eager, being ready, 
Um, we might say a, a good idiom would be, I have a burning desire for something. I know your eagerness. I know your burning desire to which I, I boast. I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready. And here's another word for ready. It's, it's paraskuazo. paraskuazo. He, said, he says, uh, and, and this is the word... Um, Para is a, is, a, is a prefix in Greek for beside or to be alongside or to be near. Skuazo is a word for a vessel, for an implement, for, uh, for let's say, for some type of gear, if you, if you will. And more specifically, the original etymology of the word came from this idea of sailing gear, of ropes and sails and those things that would fit a ship to be able to catch the wind, if you will. And so it communicates this idea that if we are prepared, if we are ready, if we are making ourselves ready, then we're bringing together all of the things that we would need to be able to do a task or complete a mission or, you know, or, or fulfill our, our objective, if you will. It's the, the making of preparation. So you see the nuances here? Where there's eagerness, eagerness, and then there's this preparation that begins to kind of think more methodically. The, the church has got to have some people who, you know, who can think a little more methodically about you know, what steps have to be in place to go from A to B. Because there have to be some things that are brought together, some implements, some tools. It's, it's like the idea, if you're, if you're going camping, right? Do you have camping gear? Do you just jump in your car and drive to the national park? Or do you get your gear out and you walk, go through your gear? I, I promise you, I spend hours. You ask Deb. I lay everything out on the bed before I go fly fishing. And I organize my fly box. I get it all because by the end of my trip, it's going to be all, things are going to be all, you know, in there. And man, I, I'm going to get all of my gear out and I'm going to get all my gear organized so that it's handy, it's ready for action. And that's the word that he uses here. All right, keep reading. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you uh, may not prove to be empty this matter so that you may be ready. There's the word again, parascuazo. As I said, I would. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come to me and they find that you're not ready, and he puts the ah in front of it, which negates the word ah, para skuazo, uh, he w- we would be humiliated to say nothing of you uh, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead of you and, here's another word, arrange in advance. Procatartizo, to arrange in advance. The, the word pro is, again, before or you know, out in front. Catartizo is the idea of fitting or it's the idea of equipping. To be equipped, if you will. And so the, so the question, you know, here are some questions that would rise just out of a simple word study of the words for ready. Say, are, are, are you eager? What are you eager about? What do you spend your time focusing on? Are, you know, is there an eagerness? Is there a is there a burning desire that you have you know, for, for the things of God or something that is kingdom 
oriented? What, what are the implements? What are the things that need to be brought together for, for us or for you? Things that need to be assembled in order for us to complete our mission and our, our vision as people. And, and how are you being equipped? Are you involved in anything that is equipping you with some intentionality to prepare you for ministry because you realize all of the Bible studies that we do on Sunday morning, the goal of the Bible study is not that you can just become, you, knowledge is imparted, trust me, but the goal is not that so you can become more knowledgeable and look more intelligent in front of your friends. What is the goal? That something gets implemented in your life, that you obey scripture, that you follow what you, you know, what you're you are learning, you, are, you make application, so you are being equipped in the process to be obedient. Okay, so all right, now I want to go back to, uh, for just a few minutes, to that first text in 2 Corinthians, I mean, excuse me, 2 Timothy. Man, I'm confusing them. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Chapter 4. I want to look at this again. I'm going to read it again for you. But I'm going to read it in a little different order this time, and partly because I recently read Philip Yancey's book, um, Vanishing Grace, and, and he um, stirs up in one of the latter chapters in that book the discussion once again of how, uh, of, of, how uh, you know, uh, uh, of uh, the struggle between Christ and culture and how the church fits into that struggle between Christ and the, the vision of Christ and who Christ is, and and culture, and uh, and the original work that is famous was uh, uh, was uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote the book Christ and Culture. We used it in seminary years ago, uh, and 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 it's it's still in print and reprinted uh, on a number of occasions. And but Yancey brings it up and he talks about you know how how do we how does how does the how does what's the church's role between of bringing Christ. And, and culture uh, together, if you will. In, and uh, in, in Niebuhr's work, you know, there, there are a number of responses. One of them was, well, we, it, could be, it can be Christ against culture. In other words, the church could paint the culture as hopelessly, as hopelessly corrupt, you know, unredeemable. And so we're going to just totally separate ourselves from culture. So we're going to build high walls. Our churches are going to become kind of a fortress, kind of a mindset. And a lot of, a lot of fundamentalism follows that tendency, I'm saying, to see Christ as against culture. And then there are churches that see Christ as in agreement with culture. They just sort of absorb what the culture is doing and just sort of celebrate what the culture is doing and just open their arms wide and they just embrace whatever the culture is doing. You see that, and trust me, you're going to see that more and more, you know, in, in present society, okay? And then there's the, the, the idea that, we, that the, 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 the church or Christ is above the culture, and so the church should dictate to the culture what the, what the norms should be, and the church gets involved in politics and government, and you know that uh, this is the view of Thomas Aquinas, who the great Catholic theologian, and there are many places in the world where the church exercises itself control above the culture and, 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 and even holds offices that influence all aspects of finance, 
and, and politics and the governance of, of people, right? And, and then there's the, the, the tension, the view of tension with the culture, Christ in tension with culture. And this was the view of Martin Luther and saying that you learned how somehow to live in this tension and struggle, you know, this give and take, this going back and forth. And, and then there was the view of St. Augustine, the view of Calvin, that we should, the church should be involved with Christ in the transformation of culture, transforming it and its life. And so, so in the midst of that, as I'm reading all that recently, then I, I began to see this picture in the text that we have here where you know, where Paul identifies who Christ is and, and Christ becomes essentially the, the baseline and, the, you know, and the, the grounds on which he makes his appeal. So we're going to read, starting from verse 1, we'll read this again. But I want you to look at, at the picture of Christ that Paul gives us. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Now, you, 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 you hear how serious that, um, that language is. Some of the other translations, like the Holman or the New American Standard, translate this, I solemnly charge you, because the language here is courtroom language. Paul is essentially putting himself on the witness stand, and he is, you know, and he is making a solemn testimony and a solemn charge to Timothy. He says, I now testify with a solemn oath. He's essentially saying, as God is our witness here in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and, and then he gives us three things about Christ that are significant because he's become the grounds of his appeal, okay? And they're going to sound familiar because we've been in Revelation 1 recently, right? Looking at the Christ we worship. So he says this, of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead? The coming and final judge. That's Revelation chapter 1 we studied just a couple of weeks ago. And by secondly, he's, not only is he the coming and final judge, but he is coming as a conqueror. He says, "Who uh, uh, and uh, and by his appearing." And the word there, the the word there is a specific uh, word in in uh, in their in their language um, that denoted the idea of uh, when an when an emperor would make a great conquest. It, you know, would be given a welcome and a parade in which great preparations were made. The city would, you know, would be decorated. The city would be, would be prepared. And a conquering hero, the conquering emperor, would ride into the streets amidst the assembly of all of the peoples of the city. That's the, that's the idea here. Um, it's, um, Jesus will come in conquest, and he will come as a king um, because of his kingdom, um, Paul says. So the grounds of his appeal. We are to get ready, he said, and, and, and Timothy, you're to get ready because of who Christ is as coming and final judge and conqueror, the uh, uh, epiphania, the conqueror and the king over his kingdom. Now look at what he says about culture. Okay, so we're going to skip down to verse three. In regards to the culture in, in which Timothy is living and doing ministry, he says this: "For the time is coming." Verse three: "When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions." 
their own desire. And will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander into myths. And, and Paul is saying, Timothy, this is, what, this is what's ahead for you. Even there at Ephesus and surrounding area. area. And it couldn't be uh, more true of even our, our own times. It seems to ring true well to me. So then let's go back to verse 2 and let's see where Christ is in the midst, you know, in the midst with Christ, being in Christ and, in, and involved in doing ministry in a culture like that. Listen to what he says to Timothy, verse 2. Preach the word. Take seriously, study, proclaim, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And it's a play on words there. It's, it's eukairos and akairos. It means it, whether it's timely or not timely. Whether it's in season or not in season. Be ready. You must be ready. And then he qualifies that, that imperative to say reprove and rebuke and exhort. Now the word for reproof there is, is, is the idea of engaging the mind to give explanation, to help, and to, to give arguments so that you could, you could correct someone's understanding, someone's teaching. Uh, because it's, in, it's the engaging of the mind, whatever, to help explain, to give understanding of truth, to put somebody back on, you know, on the path that's gotten off of the path of, of truth. Then he says rebuke. And, and this is another military term, which, which uh, literally translates the idea of someone who breaks ranks. Someone who breaks ranks, someone who goes AOL, then you need to pull them back in line. You need to pull them back in line. You know, so there's, the rebuke may be of, of attitude or actions, either one. So it's not an appeal to the mind as much as an appeal to the heart, to the, to the attitude and the actions you know, of, uh, of a friend or a brother. And, and that's coupled with exhort. Which is literally just the idea of it's it's the idea of encouragement that we're to encourage one another. And I don't know about you, but those these things need to be applied in balance. Do you see that? You don't want to rebuke without encouraging. Seriously, I'm saying because you you know you don't want to do any of those things without you know without including in that in encouraging. And he says with complete patience. With complete patience and, and teaching, always being patient. So what's the role of the church in culture? If we're going to live sent, number one, it's to proclaim the word of God. It's to anchor our lives in the word of God and profess and proclaim it clearly in the culture. So a part of our preparation is that we're staying near and attached to Christ and in Christ. I'm saying, but our, and our involvement in the culture is 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 a, an, is to proclaim clearly, simply, faithfully the Word of God. Okay, so let me just close with this. So what about you? What about you? I, I love verse five. Paul's final admonition here to 
to Timothy before he begins to do the biographical thing to, to talk about his own departure. It's the last instruction he gives to Timothy. He says, Timothy, as for you. And here it is a Timothy, okay? Here it is a protege, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and, uh, you know, for yourself. As for you, how, how are you going to be prepared? Four things. Be sober-minded. As for you, congregation, believer, be sober-minded. Now, that's the opposite of what? Being intoxicated, right? You know what I'm saying? When I go to Colorado, you know, to hang out with my family in Colorado, I'm the designated driver. You know what I'm saying? Because somebody has got to be sober and alert, right? Mountain highways? Makes sense to me. See, somebody has to keep their wits about them. Somebody has to have, you know, emotions under control, has to be mentally focused. And, and in a sense, what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, here's the deal. You need to be cool, calm, and collected. Sober. Minded. Every faculty sort of in full command. How many of you watched the PJ Championship last weekend? Did you? Man, I loved it. You know, Jason Day coming to the 18th green. I'm saying, picture of sober minded, focused, channeled, things under control. I'm saying he sinks that last putt and wins the PGA, and what does he do? He just begins to weep. It was a beautiful moment. You're saying, but it's when because when but when things mattered, he was cool, he was calm, he was collected, he was alert, he was ready in that sense. Secondly, Paul would say to us. And to other Timothys within my hearing, endure suffering. Endure suffering. I would suggest to you there's two kinds. We don't have time to go very deeply into this, but there are two kinds. There is the suffering that we receive um, at the hand of others that I think Paul would have in mind. Okay, that we may suffer rejection or persecution. We may be misunderstood. There may be physical pain and abuse that results. And if you are aware, in 60 and 61 AD, Nero's persecution of the church was well underway. And Christians were being drug out of their houses. Their property was being seized, taken from them. They were becoming homeless in the streets. Many of them were Many of them were martyred and killed, used as torches, you know, dipped in tar and used in torches in Nero's gardens, and and others were thrown to lions, any number of other types of suffering. So there's suffering that can come at the hand of, of others, but there's another kind of suffering and it is a more self-imposed kind of suffering. It would consist of and, and mirror a statement that you would recognize. No pain, no gain. There are spiritual disciplines that we can practice that involve intensity, labor, and we put ourselves, you know, we put ourselves in 
hardship in the sense so that we can be prepared for what is coming. Right? I, I went, I, I went uh, did a long hike on my fly fishing trip with my son, my 29-year-old son. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was about four or five miles up a trail, up a mountain trail that went up to a, almost 13,500 feet or something like that. And I've been living in Texas, right? You know, my son, Jess, he's 29. You know, he's a soccer coach. He works out all the time. Man, I got about, a, I got about 300 yards up that incline, and I hit my aerobic threshold. You know what I'm talking about. You know, and, and I endured suffering because I wanted to get to the fish. And, and I'm telling you, for the last three quarters of that four, four or five mile hike up into the, to the beaver ponds up on, you know, on, on, the, on, the, uh, on the trail, it was this. You know, and my son, where was he? Man, if I'd have fallen off the side of that mountain, he would have known it. Because he was way out in front. Why? Because he's in shape. He's fit. And, and you, realize, you realize that if you care about your faith, you know, then you, got, you need to grow your faith muscle. And you do that by disciplines. By the spiritual disciplines of prayer and, and digging deep into the study of the word and being in community where you're challenged in your ideas, where you, you know, where you're involved in, you know, in, in carving out time to get away and declutter your life so that you can actually be in the presence of, of, of God. And so there is a kind of self-imposed suffering that there's a pain that leads to gain. And I would encourage us to think in terms, not only do we take whatever comes in terms of suffering, that which we can't control, but that we, we pay a price to suffer in advance so that we are ready, so that we can make the climb when it's time to, to, to make that climb, no matter what the altitude might be. And then a third thing, he says, do the work of an evangelist. You know, every one of us in this room has been given a stewardship of the gospel to carry the good news with us at all times and to announce that good news, to center our lives in the gospel. It's what Ryan was trying to help us understand in worship this morning. We have to center our lives in the gospel so that we can do, we can share that good news. Here's a simple application. If you haven't done this, I challenge you this week. Don't wait. Don't put it off. I challenge you this week to sit down and write out on two or three pages your personal testimony. What Christ means to you and how you met Christ. So that you would have the gospel ready and and then you you accent that your your personal story with some scriptures that are meaningful to you how God has spoken truthfully to you do the work do the work do the preparation 
of an evangelist, of one who bears good news, and then last, fulfill Timothy. Timothy's fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your area of service. Service, the word here is the same word we get the word deacon from. It's the word for service. It, it more specifically means service that is directed or commanded by another. You get it? You see, the goal of this series is not just that we execute ready, aim, and fire on all points, but that we come to, as, as collectively as a church family to, to understand and hear the voice that is commanding us, that it's his voice that we respond to. Wellbend Church believes that every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. Every member has a call. Every member has a gift. Every member has a personal journey. And, and we, we're audacious enough to believe, you know, that even all the hurts and the wounds and the struggles of your past, God uses that somehow to prepare you in an incredible way to complete his, you know, his will now and fulfill your ministry because everything that's happened in your life is preparing you for that moment. You know but we also believe that we need to be diligent and intentional to prepare. To prepare. Let's pray.